God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be reading from verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. The Apostle says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this morning you have given us your word. You have inspired it. And you have given it that we may be wise and understanding. That we may learn how to live before you. In such a way that reflects gratitude for the great ransom price of our salvation, the precious blood of Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would prepare room in our hearts for your word. And that as your word is expounded, would you cause it to give us wisdom and understanding. And that we may walk in the fear of the Lord for the glory of your holy name. This we ask through Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I hope all of your Bibles are open. And I hope as you turn to verse 18, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you have the very same word that I have at the outset of that sentence. That word should be flee. Now in order to give you the urgency and the sense of that word, I want to relate a story that I read last week. A lady was out walking her dog and was also with her three-year-old daughter somewhere near uh, Vancouver, British Columbia in a local park. And as she was uh, walking through the park and picking berries, she noticed what she thought was a dog out of the corner of her eye. She thought very little of it and kept walking along with her daughter and her dog enjoying the afternoon when all of a sudden, from behind her, this dog turned out to be a mountain lion, subdued her daughter, pinned her towards her back, and had her belly clamped within her jaws. At that moment, the mother, not knowing what else to do, jumped on the mountain lion, worked her way in between Uh, Her daughter and the mountain lion picked up her daughter and, as she put it, booked out of there. Now, i got to think that's the fastest 100-yard dash time ever recorded in history. 
That's the sense of the word here, flee. It's not just that we move to another location, but what the Apostle Paul is saying when he says flee immorality is that we flee with all of our might, that we run absolutely as fast as we can move from the situation of danger to a situation of safety. That is the sense behind the word. It is used literally in a number of places in the New Testament to indicate a rapid movement from one area to another to avoid danger. It is used figuratively by the Apostle Paul on another occasion where he commands uh, Timothy that he is to flee youthful lust, but how it emerges from the text also suggests to us this morning a profound sense of urgency on account of danger. Uh, typically in Greek sentences, as one relates to the next, there's a connector word, which indicates the relationship of thoughts throughout a paragraph, how they are connected together, sort of like a puzzle. But here in verse 18, the Apostle Paul does not put in a connector word. He just stamps across this text the sense of urgency that he wants to admonish these Corinthians to follow when it comes to immorality. He says that they are to flee. And it's the same kind of idea of that woman fleeing for her life and the life of her child. The Apostle Paul then, first of all, has this command for the church, which is a very necessary command for us to consider and to be admonished about. He says, flee, and the thing that he says that we are to flee is immorality. Now, it's the same word that the Apostle Paul has been using throughout chapter 5 and also through chapter 6. The first time we saw this word was back in chapter 5, verse 1, when he says that there is immorality among you, immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Now, as you read through the context, you can see the Apostle Paul is not using this as a sort of generic term to refer to any kind of violation of God's commandments. No, he's using the term here to refer to sexual immorality. And if we want to be very precise about it, that kind of sexual immorality that he's telling Christians to flee from is any sex which is outside of marriage. Now, it's very true that in verses 15 and 16, he has a particular cultural and specific application that the men of the church are not to be visiting prostitutes. And you stop and you think about that right there, and it boggles your mind why a preacher would have to tell men in this congregation uh, not to go have sex with prostitutes. But as we'll see in a moment, these Corinthians were quite promiscuous people. It's just what they did in their culture. It was uh, equivalent to going to the park for an afternoon. It was recreational. And so here the apostle gives this very, uh, this really uh, urgent warning when he says to the church, uh, particularly to the men, but it's to all the people of God, flee sexual immorality. And I want to pause there and I want to take a moment to walk us uh, through the New Testament ethic when it comes to sexuality. Because uh, the New Testament really emphasizes a prohibition against sex out of, outside of marriage like nowhere else you find in ethical literature. And I think it all begins with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, he has a bunch of Pharisees around him. And as we had that law reading this morning from Matthew chapter 5, we noticed uh, that it's kind of about Jesus telling uh, these people what really constitutes the kind of righteousness which can secure divine reward. And you see, the people who were listening thought that uh, keeping the law was fairly simple. It's just a long list of do's and don'ts. 
Just simple as that. The law could be kept by anybody as long as they knew exactly what kind of righteousness God required. And then they put this external pressure on people to behave in conformity to that. And then if you just followed that simple sort of formula, you'd have the kind of righteousness which would lead to your justification. So as Jesus is speaking to these kind of pharisaical, hypocritical kind of people, uh, he says, well, uh, you have heard it said... And then he goes on to quote the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And you know, when he said that, all the guys that were standing there on that particular occasion must have thought to themselves when they heard that particular uh, command come out of Jesus' mouth that they were all doing very well. Because to them, committing adultery was having sex with somebody else's wife and that just didn't happen. But here is what Jesus goes on to say. You, he says, you have, heard it, you have uh, heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says, here's really what the seventh commandment is about. He says, everyone that looks at a woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, what Jesus does is he shows the full, intensive uh, outworking of the law. It's not just about externals. It's not just about actions. Jesus says it's about the roots of sin in the heart. And as soon as he said that, everyone there began to put their hands in their pocket and look around whistling in the sky. Because everybody knew that they had broken the seventh commandment as Jesus had explained it. You see, Jesus says the commandment goes into the deep recesses of the heart. That's where sin occurs. And that's where the law is to constrain our actions. Well, it's with this very emphatic teaching on the seventh commandment that sets the tone for the rest of the New Testament. You don't have to turn to these references. I just want you to hear them. The very first church court that I met, or at least the official recorded first meeting of the church courts to decide a particular issue is Acts chapter 15. And here you have the command which prohibits people to engage in sexual immorality. Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says, Let us behave properly in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Last week we noticed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Paul's instruction in Galatians 5.19 about the works of the flesh. The very first three sins he mentions, which are works of the flesh, are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3, he says, But immorality or any impurity must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Some translations say, don't even allow a hint of that to be named among you. Colossians 3.5, the apostles says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly bodies as dead immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. It is affirmed in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed undefiled. The fornicator and adulterer God will judge. James 2.11 quotes the seventh commandment as still binding upon Christians. 
1 Peter chapter 4, the Apostle Peter warns there about the old kinds of sins and the old lifestyle, among which he includes sensuality and lust. I will tell you that in almost every single uh, New Testament book, you will find a clear, emphatic prohibition against sexual immorality, that being defined as any sex outside of marriage. Now, I went through that list, and I'm making it this plain, because I want it to be clear that God has standards. God has immutable, objective standards, and they cannot be changed. And those standards stand out against every other system of religion that I'm aware of. They are so comprehensive and so clear and so unambiguous that they stand out very clearly over against secularism and most major world religions. Now, why did this have to be said so clearly and so repeatedly? Well, at this time, and we kind of like to say, well, today is worse than any other day in world history. Well, actually it's not. Uh, Promiscuity was probably a lot worse in Corinth than it is in our own day, even though it's creeping in that direction. Just listen to Apollodorus, who is a Greek man, describe uh, how an average Greek person thought about sex. He says, We have courtesans for pleasure, handmaidens for day-to-day care of our body, wives to bear legitimate children, and to be trusted guardians of the home. If you read between the lines there, and you don't really have to lead too far into the lines, basically what he's saying is that people don't get married to have sex. They just get married to have legitimate children. That's it. The, the wife was to stay home, barefoot and pregnant, and the man could go out and he could have as many sexual relationships as he would like. And there was no prohibition against that at all. Nobody even thought that that was in any way immoral or wrong. It was absolutely customary. People didn't marry for romance or for love. They married for babies, legitimate heirs, and that's it. In fact, it was so common in the ancient world that Solon, one of the great architects of Athenian democracy, set up brothels that were subsidized by the state for all men to be able to go to as sort of a social service, kind of like a recreation facility or a park. For anybody who was of any means at all, they could just go. That was the norm. That's the kind of cultural permissiveness that the authors of the New Testament are addressing. And to that particular kind of a context, but to all other kinds, the apostles and Jesus and the scriptures clearly say that God has a standard. As I said, well, our, our day already, we reference the fact that our day is fairly permissive. was not as bad as Greek culture was, but it's getting fairly bad. You watch TV or the movies, there's all kinds of situations and explicit material that wouldn't even have been thought to be allowed of 20 years ago. I know it sounds old when I say that, but it's true. We have skyrocketing non-married teen pregnancies in our country. We have online dating services for married people to hook up with other people advertised on radio and TV and the Internet. One in four people under the age of 27 in Los Angeles County have an STD. 
Statistics tell us that approximately 60% of husbands and 40% of, 40% of wives will have an affair at some time during their marriage. One story, however, really caught my attention as I was thinking about this last week that sort of shows us uh, how our culture is creeping towards this permissiveness. The story is about a 22-year-old girl, and you may have heard about this, who had completed her bachelor's degree and wanted to go on to get a master's degree but didn't have enough money to do it. So she advertised online in the local newspaper that she would auction off her virginity to the highest bidder in order to pay for her college. But turns out after 10,000 bids, she got $3.7 million to go get a master's degree, and you guessed it, marriage and family counseling. It's just the kind of attitude that's becoming a pervasive as if it's no big deal at all. It's to a culture that impresses us and influences us in that direction the Apostle Paul states this very clear and emphatic prohibition. Flee. And one reason why Christians have to be warned about this is because too often instead of fleeing, we flock to it. Kind of like a car accident. I'm sure you're aware of this. You've seen it happen before if you're driving down the freeway that people tend to be curious if not to rubberneck, sometimes just park alongside the road to see if they can view any of the gory details of the accident. Just this past week, a horrifying situation happened around the corner from our house. My wife came walking through the door. This was the last day of school after she picked up the boys from school, walked in white as a sheet and said, I think I just saw some little boy lying dead on the sidewalk. Well, apparently he didn't die. He'd been skateboarding down the hill and he fell down. He bumped his head pretty severely and bled all over the sidewalks so you could see it and there were nothing but people and paramedics and cop cars surrounding the situation because that's what people do they flock to those kinds of situations out of curiosity but that's the mentality too often is we flock to these kinds of situations and around the temptation and the opportunity rather than do what the Apostle Paul says to do here which is flee He says, flee the opportunity. Help us think through the reasons for why that is so. And by the way, I think the reasons are just as important and even more profound than the intensive and urgent command. You see, Paul didn't just say, don't do it. He gave a series of reasons see those in our text. You see those, first of all, in verse 18. I want to show you three reasons which uphold this particular command. Verse 18, the Apostle Paul not only gives us the command, but he goes on with the reason, saying, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And there's your first reason. He says the reason why you must flee from sexual immorality is because of the nature of the sin. He says there are two kinds of sin. There are sins that are committed outside of the body. And basically he places all other sins in that category. And he places one sin in this one category that he says is against the body. He says this is why you shouldn't do it. Because it's like no other sin in terms of its nature. 
It's against the body. Of course, the phrase has perplexed all kinds of commentators and theologians throughout the centuries, but I think that Charles Hodge had one of the best uh, remarks on this that I read as I was researching this passage. And here's what he says. This does not teach that fornication is greater than any other sin. He says, but it does teach that it is altogether peculiar in its effects upon the body, not so much in its physical as in its moral and spiritual effects. He went on to say, there is something mysterious in the commerce of the sexes and in the effects which flow from it. You see, the idea here is that it has an unusual and peculiar effect upon the body. And you think about that particular kind of language and you work your way back in the Old Testament and you see in the book of Proverbs that it sort of works with that particular idea. For instance, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 9, talking about a young man who would go off to seek out a sex with a prostitute says that a stranger will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will be the house of an alien. He says you will groan at the end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Probably a reference to STDs. Chapter 6. Further instruction about this given from a father to a young man. He says on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. He says, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Moral and spiritual effects. Proverbs 7. The writer says, Suddenly he follows her that is the prostitute as an ox goes to the slaughter. He does not know it will cost him his life. There's the moral and spiritual effects. And it's fascinating, the picture and the imagery that is used here in Proverbs 7 to describe it. He says, as an ox goes to a slaughter, he does not know. It's not that he doesn't know. He does know. It's just that when he becomes so involved and, and so seduced by the situation that he forgets the instruction and training, he's just like an ox going to the slaughter. I don't know if you've ever seen it, and probably haven't, because most of you are city slickers. But I remember as a kid watching uh, when the butcher would come out to our house and butcher the hogs and the cows. And I'll tell you, this is a very apt description because it's very clear what it means when it says, as an ox goes to the slaughter. He's not thinking about anything. Our old butcher used to throw grain down on the ground in front of the animal and he'd walk up behind it and pat it in the back and scratch its ear, stick a gun right behind its ear, like that, dead. Without the animal ever even thinking for a second what was about to come. I hope that didn't gross you out too much, but I think it's pretty mild what I just said. But it was very common. It wasn't something... I mean, you begin to understand these animals have no clue about what's going to happen next. He says, that's just what it's like for people who engage in this kind of activity perpetually. They become mentally and morally and spiritually numb to the consequences and the effects. To the point that finally it becomes so routine and so habitual that they're just like the ox. It doesn't even know the peril that awaits as he chomps on the grain before the bullet goes right through the brain. That's what it's like, he says. The second reason why the Apostle Paul says flee from it is because of the mystery that is bound up with sex. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. I want you to see this for yourself. 
Genesis chapter 2. And we're going there because the Apostle Paul quotes from this particular passage. But I want you to see it for yourself. As we're working uh, in our Bibles to get back to 2, I want to just fill in the context. Moses has been recording the creative activity of God, chapter 1, and then also into chapter 2. He has repeatedly told us that everything that God is doing is good. Repeatedly he says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And he finally says, and it was very good. But when you get to verse 18 of chapter 2, you finally see, you, you see God say something that's very unique in this context. It says, it's not good. The Lord said, it's not good. After a whole series of good, 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 very good, you have God saying, not good. What's not good? But what was not good is that Adam was all alone. So uh, from there on, in the following verses, you have the record of God performing the very first surgery of human history. Puts Adam to sleep, opens up his rib cage, snags a rib, and forms Eve. Adam was so overjoyed about it that he wrote her a poem when he saw her. Verse 23. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she's called woman. Adam was excited. But then he got married. Verse 24, it says, For this reason a man shall cleave to his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And here are the words that I want you to see. They shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. You see, the Bible loves, leaves the rest up to your imagination. But it's that last clause in verse 24 that I wanted you to think about. They shall become one flesh. Now, if you come back to 1 Corinthians 6, you'll see why I took you there. Go to verse 16. 1 Corinthians 6:16. 6, the apostle says in the front half of the verse he says don't you know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her and then he says for he's giving the explanation for why it is that when a person commits sexual immorality they are joined with that other person he says the two shall become one flesh Paul just quoted Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 and God's mysterious arrangement for marriage, for sexuality, and for the joining of a man and a woman as husband and wife in a sacred and mysterious bond that he calls one flesh. Paul uses that uh, basis for sexuality and marriage here in verse 16 as a reason for not engaging in sexual immorality. He says, if you go out and do that, what you don't understand, but you need to understand, is that you're not only violating the law, but you're violating the divine ordinance of God. You see, he's arranged things in such a way that mysteriously, something happens. That when one man and one woman get together, they become one flesh. Men didn't come up with that. Jews didn't come up with that idea. Religious people didn't come up with that. That's the mysterious ordering of reality. And that's what happens when people have sexual relations. They become one. 
It's not like any other thing that you can think of under the sun. Paul says that's supposed to be reserved for a very special and specific situation. A man and a wife in a married relationship. It's not about recreation. It's not about exploration. It's not about taking your relationship to a new level. It's about a man and a wife enjoying a profound mystery that words can't describe. Paul says if you want to have that and maintain that and to enjoy that, there's only one place that that can be sustained. And that's in the context of a married relationship. Why does he say flee immorality? It's pretty simple. Because if you don't, you'll violate a sacred and divine mystery that you can never, ever repair or bring back. He gives another reason, the third and final one you'll see here. It's beginning in verse 12. The apostle seems to be quoting a proverb when he says, uh, all things are lawful for me. And I don't mean a proverb from the Bible, probably a local cultural uh, slogan or idea. All things are lawful for me. You see that it repeats that again in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then verse 13, you can see sort of how it's applied in the rationale and the thinking that was used to justify uh, the sexual immorality even among the Corinthian Christians. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. You see, what you, uh, you kind of pick up the slogan how it was applied. Well, food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. If all food is lawful to be eaten and the stomach is made uh, to receive the food, then you can eat all the kinds of food you want. And if you can eat all the kinds of food you want because it's a bodily appetite and a bodily activity that's just fine, not unlawful, completely legal, then why can't you have multiple sexual partners and relationships? It's just physical. Notice Paul's response to that, which is amplified from various angles throughout the rest of the passage. He says, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now there's his response to it. Here's why it's wrong. is because the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And you can see Paul unfold that. Verse 17, he says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. You can see him deal with it in verses 19 and 20. And I'm going to take verse 20 on first. He says, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. That expounds what he said in verse 13, the body is for the Lord. You see why the body is for the Lord? He says, you have been bought with a price. You see, there's a twofold ownership of us by God. There's, first of all, an ownership of us by God by virtue of our creation. By virtue of God creating us and shaping us in His image, He owns us. And therefore, is Lord over us and has every right to command us to do exactly what He says. But there's a twofold ownership. There's a redemptive ownership. You have been bought with a price. 
One commentator points out this particular word bought with a price was used in the slave markets of Paul's day. And basically what it meant is that a man went down to the slave market with a pocket full of change. He threw it out on the auctioneer table and he went home with his slave. And when he went home with his slave, he had every right to command that person to do exactly what he wanted to do. That's the sense here. God, because He owns you by redemption, Christian, has every right to tell you what to do. The Lord owns the body. The body is for the Lord. But then you can see the other half of that expounded. The Lord is for the body. You can see that expounded in verse 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? See, Paul gives another explanation for why uh, sexual immorality is permitted is because the body is for the Lord. It's not just that he owns the body, but the body is for the Lord in the specific way in which the body is for the Lord. It's for the Lord to inhabit and to dwell in his sacred space. To sanctify it and to regenerate it and to renew it and to unite it mystically and and intensely to Christ. What he's saying is that cannot happen. It cannot happen. The body cannot be for the Lord if it's being farmed out to sexual immorality. There are your reasons, Paul says. Okay, so we covered the text this morning. I know that this is always one of those topics that leaves everybody squirming. Because, first of all, it's against polite conversation rules to talk about it. What's more, we're in church. Everybody assumes that you're not supposed to talk about these kinds of things because it's uncomfortable. And I acknowledge that we're all probably really uncomfortable with this. But the fact of the matter is, this sermon was first given by Paul. It wasn't given by me. And this is what happens when you preach through the Bible, verse by verse, as you run into things that make you feel uncomfortable. It says, here it is, flee. If you read this passage this morning, I believe that There are about three applications that we need to hear as we walk away together all uncomfortable. And the first application I want to make, particularly to our young people, is that you're not a loser or a wimp or a coward if you don't have sex before you get married. You see, that's pretty important to hear. Because nobody else will tell you that. Nobody else will tell you that. In fact, all of your friends will tell you that you're a complete loser and a wimp and a coward if you're not out having sex with some girl. And in fact, I understand that today it's just as, uh, almost as, as strongly encouraged by other young girls towards each other. The fact that this is growing more prevalent is indicated by the fact that 
on average, most young men give up their virginity by the time they're 16 in our culture today, and most women by the time they're 17. And the reasons are usually the same. It'll make your relationship better. You'll get closer. They'll be more special. You'll be able to be a part of the cool crowd. I don't know what kind of language is used. It doesn't really matter to me. I just want to make the point. It's none of those things. To violate God's command is a lack of courage. That's all you need to know. To violate God's command is a lack of courage of conviction. You'll never regret it. You will absolutely never regret it. If you obey God and His command here, when He says, flee immorality, you will never miss out on something you wish you could go back and redo. So the first admonition is simple. Have courage of conviction. Flee immorality. Secondly, if you are married, you need to guard the sacred mystery that Paul speaks of in verse 16. The two shall become one flesh. I wish that was part of sex education training. Because if people thought more about what happens, and I know the world does not recognize this mystery, even though it knows there is something very unique, it intuitively knows that there is something that is utterly unique that happens when two people come together. But to the married couples, Paul would say, make sure you guard the mystery. Make sure you guard what's sacred. You know, when I was growing up, and I know this was utterly naive, I thought that once you got married, the temptation would just go away. That the problem of violating the seventh commandment is taken right off the table. Well, the fact is, about 50% of people who claim to be Christians in our country violate this command. It doesn't get taken off the table. Not for Christians. And not for others. What we need to hear this morning, if we are married, is this. Guard what's sacred. Guard the mystery. Guard the one fleshedness. And then the third thing, and the hopeful thing of our passage is this. If you didn't listen to verse 18... If you didn't listen. And by the way, that's probably everyone here. If you apply it according to the rigid standard of Christ. Anybody who looks lustfully in their heart after another. Then there's also good news this morning. That there's forgiveness. Because that price that Paul speaks of here. That price for redemption. And price is the blood of Christ. The scriptures tell us that if, if you go to that price, if you go to that blood, if you confess your sins there, the word of God says He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But the way God does that is by us confessing 
fleeing and running to the cross. It's a good place for us to end this morning in a very challenging passage that makes us all feel uncomfortable. At the cross, where our life is, where our Christ is, where our salvation is, where our forgiveness is, where righteousness is. And to go there and to find forgiveness. And then to walk away this morning with resolve to obey God. You know, people of God, I hope that image of that mother with her three-year-old daughter scooped up in her arms running for her dear life is a story you never forget. And I hope it's an image that's stamped across your mind this morning. Not only the danger that we face that we must run from, but the duty which it captures so vividly. Flee. Flee. In order that we may glorify God with our bodies. Let's pray.